First Timothy chapter 1. We are going to uh, do what I'm calling a summary exposition of salvation tonight. Let's remember why, again, Paul wrote this very important letter to a young pastor named Timothy. The key verses of 1 Timothy are found in verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you in case I am delayed to let you know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God because it is the church of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. We can never assume that when we become part of the church, part of the family of God, that we know how to do church. That we know what our responsibilities are now as children of God. None of us do. We have to be taught that. And too many churches for too long have failed to teach the people of God how to be the people of God. And so that's why our churches struggle so much because nobody really knows what we should be doing, so everybody just sort of tries to figure it out for themselves. And that's not good. We, we need to be doing church and being part of the church the way God designed it to be. That's the way it functions most effectively and most efficiently. So then Paul is sharing with Timothy, here are the things to instruct your people about in the church at Ephesus, so that they can fulfill their responsibility and obligations before God as the people of God, as the family of God, as the church of God. And I want to go back now to chapter 1 and verse 15, where we're going to begin tonight, because Paul comes to a place where he says to Timothy, I'm giving you something that is very reliable. You can bank on it. You can count on it. And that is this. Christ Jesus, the anointed Messiah, the Son of God, came into this world to save sinners, to, to deliver sinners, to make whole sinners. Now, part of the reason why salvation isn't happening like it should be is because we have a uh, lack of, of human beings who are willing to acknowledge that they're sinners. And, and I'm not just talking about people who don't believe in God yet. I'm talking about us, because even though we're saved sinners, we're still sinners too. And we're still in need of deliverance from the power of sin in our lives, even though we may have been delivered from the penalty of sin when we accepted Christ as our Savior. So... Jesus Christ came to deliver us, to make us whole. And, and what Paul is, is teaching here in this passage is primarily what salvation, I should say it this way, what, what Jesus is leading us to. Because for many people, when they think of being saved or salvation, it's always what they're being saved from, but not what they're being saved to. And salvation is both aspects. It is not only God saving us from certain things, it's God saving us to certain things. L let me give you a biblical illustration of this. 
When God sent Moses to deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, he wasn't just intending to save them out of their bondage in Egypt and then go, okay, you're saved, now that's it. No, it was always with the intent that after I pull you out of Egypt, I want to take you into the promised land. And the promised land is not equal to heaven. Because there will be no struggles, there will be no battles, there will be no walls to tear down, there will be, you know, no people to overcome in heaven. The promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life, about living life with God after we have been saved out of our bondage. And so, it's not just God wanting to save us out of Egypt, if you will. It's He wants to take us to the promised land. So when you and I think about salvation, we can't just look at it in terms of, yes, God, when we accept Christ as our Savior, saves us from the penalty of sin, wants to save us from the power of sin, and one day will even save us from the very presence of sin. You see. But that's not what Paul wants to concentrate on in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Because he's talked about that a lot of other places. And that's not where he wants Timothy to focus. Because again, like many Christians today, that's our focus. We get that. But what we don't center our thoughts on is what God wants to save us to. Sort of the the promised land aspect of it. And so I want to go back into some things we talked about last week and then move into... Uh, a sort of a new unearthed passage of Scripture tonight that we haven't yet looked at yet. So when we think about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, okay, again, to deliver us, to make us whole, one of the things that God saves us to is He saves us to grow. I get that from back in verse 10, where Paul tells Timothy at the end, please... Make sure that you are teaching sound teaching and that you are challenging those who are living contrary to sound teaching. And the sound teaching that Timothy is to do in his church in verse 10 is in contrast to the false teaching that's being spread by some up in verse 3 that Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to put an end to. Sound teaching, we saw last week, is what gives us spiritual fitness spiritual health and enables us to grow. And so when God saves us, He saves us not just to be satisfied with being out of Egypt, He saves us to grow so that we will continue to grow and increase and become greater and greater through, through our spiritual growth and maturity. In verse 12, we see that we are also saved to serve. Again, Paul said, I'm grateful to the one who strengthened me in Christ Jesus our Lord because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry. And we talked again about this last week, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but the point is this for tonight. God not only saves us to grow, he saves us to serve. There was no such thing as God's intent that now that you're saved, you can just sit. You can just be a spectator. No, we are always saved to participate. to to be involved in the activity of the church, to be ministers, 
to be servants, to attentively wait on the Lord and do what He's asking and calling us to do. That's always been God's intent. That's part of the promised land living of saving us out of Egypt, saving us to grow, saving us to serve. And so, again, it's, the, it's up to us that we teach the people of God. These are God's expectations for His church. These are God's expectations for His family, for His children. We need to grow and we need to serve. Then if you look at verse 14 of chapter 1, and these are not obviously in any particular order because I'd actually put this in verse 14 first, then grow second, and then serving last. But he also saves us so that we personally can relate to him in our lives. Notice what Paul says. He says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, talking about before he came to Christ, but our Lord's grace was abundant, bringing faith and love in Christ Jesus. When, when Paul uses the terms faith and love, he's saying, look, God gave me these gifts that can only be found in Jesus Christ, and these gifts enabled me to be able to relate to God Himself on a personal level. That's what faith is. Faith is always a gift from God. It's not something that you and I as human beings can cook up or manufacture ourselves. Paul makes that very clear in the book of Ephesians. For by grace are you saved through faith. That faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. See, faith is a gift, but it is a gift given by God so that we then can respond to God. Faith is being able to respond to God, to interact with God, to have a relationship with God. That's what faith enables us to do. And so Paul says, here's the cool thing. When God saves me, it's not just to save me, and even we talked about this Sunday, to leave me out there on my own to try to navigate life. It is to do life in union, jointly, coupled with Him. You see. And we do that in faith. And then love. He gives us the gift of His love so that we can relate to Him in, in this loving relationship with God. Personally, Paul's saying. You see. So it, it's learning to build a relationship with God. You see. Again, something that many people never, never get. It's like, well, I know God, but it never goes any further than that. I, I know Him enough to know that He's my Savior. Uh, that Yeah, I, I'm a sinner. He died for me on the cross. But then it sort of ends there. There, there is no ongoing personal relationship with God. And let's even say this. Jesus makes it very clear that that's really what it's all about anyway. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, he gives us a very sobering warning. He said, there will be many people at the day of judgment who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and even use the name Lord, have we not, you know, done all these things in your name and cast out demons and all of that. And Jesus says, I never knew you. We never had any kind of relationship going here. And a relationship is something that needs to continue to grow and be built and nurtured and nourished and all of that. And that's what God saves us to. That's part of why He gives us the gift of faith and love. So that not only can we grow, not only can we serve, but we can continue to know Him and grow in our relationship with 
Then we come to the verses we've not yet looked at in 1 Timothy. But I want to pick it up in verse 15. Because in verse 16, Paul's going to give us another reason of why God saves us and what he saves us to rather than just what he saves us from. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Arms open wide. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them, Paul says. I'm I'm number one. And here is why I was treated with mercy. By the way, I love that word treated. In the original language, it means pursued. Paul says, God pursued me with his mercy. Wow, that's the kind of God that the Bible reveals. God pursues us with his mercy because he understands those people will never pursue me. If God would not pursue us, if God would not run after us, if, if God would not extend and reach out to us, we would none of us ever be saved, ever be delivered, ever be made whole. He's continually reaching out and extending himself and pursuing us and trying to woo us to what he wants to save us to, not just save us from. Remember that. God pursues us. And then Paul goes on to say this. So that in me, as the worst, as the number one sinner, Christ Jesus could demonstrate, could make fully evident, an undeniable display is what the word demonstrate means. His utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. I love this. Think about what Paul's saying. He says, here's one of the things that God saves us to. He saves us to grow. He saves us to serve. He saves us to personally to him. But he also saves us for this. He saves us so that we can become literally a showpiece. That God can put on display in front of other people who don't know him yet to draw them to Christ. That's what Paul said. In other words, Paul's saying what we could say. That as others observe how God has saved and is saving me, how He delivered and is delivering me, they can look at our lives and go, well, if God's doing that with Jeff, then God could do that with me, right? And and, and if God's transforming Jeff's life, then God could transform my life, right? Yeah. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're, We're an example to those around us who are yet have yet to believe. And notice Paul's very confident that there will be those who come to believe in Jesus for eternal life by looking at the showpieces that God wants to conspicuously put out there on display to show people this is what I, the God of the universe, can do in a person's life if they'll allow me to. This is what I not only can save them from, but what I can save them to. So again, it's not just that And and this is where so many churches and so many Christians just miss it. Because they end it with evangelism and with salvation. And they never go beyond that. They never are interested in making disciples and teaching their people how to be part of the church and part of the family of God. And therefore, it just sort of sits there. And all that they can display is, well, you know, I would... I was saved, but it it happened a long time ago. And God really hasn't done anything in my life or for me lately. 
or I, I've not allowed him to. And we've always got to keep, if you will, God's working and operation in our life current so that as we are around people that are yet to believe, they look at this showpiece that God wants to put on display as an undeniable example of that's what God can do in a life. Wow. See? And so we have to keep that in mind. That's what God wants. And that's why we as Christians need to be in churches where we're getting sound teaching so that we can grow. That's why we need to be serving because we grow also and enlarge ourselves and increase our spiritual muscles by serving, not by sitting. And we also become the showpieces that God can put on display, obviously, too, by continually building our personal relationship with God and relating to God on a personal level. It's not just about knowing about God. It's knowing Him from personal, first-hand experience. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, even in our study of Ephesians. So I love that. Don't miss what Paul's saying there in verse 16. Christ wanted to demonstrate His utmost patience, his compassionate long-suffering, if you will, as an example, as a pattern, as a showpiece to put on display for those who have yet to believe in eternal life. That's something God saves us to. Then verse 17. We talked about this on Sunday, but boy, it's such a major part of the New Testament. God also saves us to be worshipers. See, worship of God, praise of God, is not something that should be uh, sort of the, the abnorm, if you will, of our life. It should be always a part of our existence. We, we should be worshiping God and praising Him all the time. All the time. As, as, as we grow more sensitive to what God, who God is and what He's doing and all of that, it should drive us to worship, which is what Paul's saying here. He's like, and as I began to think, Paul said, about not only what God has saved me from, but what God, this God has saved me too. Notice how he breaks out. He says, now to the eternal King, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just stops and begins to worship God by acknowledging who God is. It results in worship and praise. He wants God to have the highest degree of of esteem and admiration from Him. That's what the word honor means. See, our worship of God should always be a growing admiration for God. Like, we're saved to that. That that we grow every day to admire God more and more. For who He is, for what He's done, and what He's doing. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to say this about each of these, just a couple things. And I could have spent a whole night on just verse 17. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable verse. 
But let's just take a couple things. First of all, the eternal king. He's acknowledging God's in control. God's the ruler. God's the sovereign of the universe. I can be secure. I can be, because I know that he is the eternal king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's been the eternal king from eternity past and will be the eternal king all the way through to the end, which there is no end. It's just eternity. He's always been, he always will be, and he will always be in charge. Always the ruler. Always in control. And then he says, immortal. The word immortal could also be incorruptible. Translated that way. And what what Paul is saying is that you realize that no matter how long God's existed, and no matter how long God will exist because he's eternal, that there is nothing ever in the person of God that ever decays or diminishes in any way. That's what incorruptible or immortal means. I mean, think about it. Everything that you and I know on earth, including ourselves, we decay over time. You see? We diminish in some way. Our capacity, our ability, it diminishes. Everything around us decays and diminishes over time. What Paul is saying is when God is the immortal God, God who has existed since we don't know when, but he's always been, that that God right now, after billions and billions and billions of years, his glory has not diminished one iota, one bit. And will never you see, God's glory and, and the, His personal excellency, nothing ever diminishes or decays at all in God. He's as glorious now as He was billions of years ago. And He will be as glorious billions of years from now as He is right now. That's what it means. And then invisible. The unseen God. Why does Paul pull this out? I want to give you something to think about and chew on and meditate on. If you haven't ever thought about this. What is the antonym in the Bible for faith? It's not fear. Do you know what the antonym in the Bible for faith is? Sight. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. So, we have to understand that God wants us to relate to Him on that. He doesn't want us to have to see and touch and, and feel and all that. He wants us to relate to Him on that unseen level. Because He wants us to relate to Him in faith, not by always having to see it. And that's part of why sometimes God hides in our lives. Why we may think, God, are you there? Yeah, he's always there. But remember, he is invisible in the sense that he doesn't always want us to see and operate our lives and navigate our lives by seeing He wants us to operate by faith. And then He says, the only God. There are no other gods. Jehovah is the only 
true God. And after all that, Paul just says, my goodness, my admiration for this God grows every day. And all he can say at the end of that short worship burst, if you will, is amen. Which simply means, so be it, or may it be so. May we give him worship and honor and praise forever. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. So God saves us to worship. Two more in verses 18 through 20 tonight. The next is, He saves us to be a soldier. I put this charge, this mandate before you, Timothy, my child. In keeping with the prophecies once spoken, the predictions that were divinely inspired, that were spoken about you, in order that with such encouragement you may fight the good fight. Are we in a fight? Yes. And we need to understand that God did not save us to not be willing to fight. Because we are in a fight. And we need to have the mentality of a soldier. Literally, the word fight means be a soldier. Be a soldier for Jesus Christ. And Paul talk, talks about this in other passages of the New Testament. You may say, I don't want to fight. It's reality. <laughs> You're in a fight whether you want to be in the fight or not. You and I then have to just rise with Jesus to the occasion and let him make us into being a good soldier. Because we're going to be in a fight. And if we're not willing to fight the good fight, we're going to get run over. And God doesn't want that. That's why even when God saved the nation of Israel out of Egypt, what did they have to do in order to obtain the promised land? They had to fight. He wasn't just going to say, oh, you know what, guys, here's all this land. I'm just going to give it to you. I'll take care of wiping out all the people that are already there. No, he said, you got to be willing to fight to get that. Because God understands there's something strengthening, something, something spiritually beneficial about us being willing to, to fight, to be a soldier. And I love this, and those of you that have been in the military, you'll appreciate this, when he uses the words good fight. It literally means to render distinguished military service. In other words, it's not enough just to be in the service. It is have the, the mentality that I, while I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ, I'm going to distinguish myself. I'm going to give the highest effort that I can as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to distinguish myself so that one day my commander-in-chief spiritually will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. There are a lot of Christians that, they're nowhere near ready to fight. And they're not even really capable of it. Why? Because they've never been taught that this is reality. 
It's almost like, again, through false gospels and false teachings, you hear people say, hey, you come to Jesus and you give your life to Him and everything will be okay. Oh, and just sow seeds of faith and God will just bless your socks off and you'll never be sick a day in your life and you'll never have any problems and all this. I just heard that on TV the other day. I was like, oh my golly, if I'd had hair, I'd have been pulling it out. It just, it so infuriates me to see all this false teaching in books and television and Christian, so-called Christian television shows and stuff. It's like amazing to me. The only way we're going to be able to render distinguished military service is if we're growing and, and we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ and we're serving and, and we're doing church and being part of the family of God the way God designed it to be. But we're saved to be a soldier. Saved to be a soldier. And then he says this, verses 19 and 20. The last thing, we are saved to navigate life by God's principles and precepts. We are saved to navigate life by God's principles and precepts. And I, and I get the term navigate because notice down here in verse 19, Paul uses the term shipwrecked to describe those who don't navigate or reject navigating life by God's principles and precepts. So let's just read these for a few minutes. To do this, in other words, to fight the good fight and render distinguished military service, Paul says, you must hold firmly to faith. In other words, again, looking at it from the sailor's perspective or the person who's guiding a ship, their life, he says, if you and I don't continually consult God's principles and precepts, we will run our life aground. The only way we will get through life is if we hold to faith and that we trust in the principles and precepts of God rather than what we think, what someone else's opinion is. It's really all about, are we willing to listen to the voice of God through the Word of God and through the indwelling Spirit of God? Because then notice Paul goes on to even add, and a good conscience. So in other words, Paul, I think, is, is in summary saying this. If you and I stop listening to the voice of God and stop listening to the voice of our conscience, we're in trouble. And Paul calls out two people by name in the church at Ephesus that he knows has sort of rejected listening to the voice of God and the voice of their conscience. Their names are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, some like them have rejected. They've literally stopped listening to God and stopped listening to their conscience and they've suffered shipwreck. They've literally run their lives aground and they now are experiencing great loss and pain because of it. They literally, like a shipwreck, literally are broken their lives in pieces because they stopped listening to God and listening to the voice of their conscience. And don't miss 
what Paul says here at the end of verse 20. Something that some Christians, I think, would be sort of surprised that Paul would say this. He says, whom I handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Paul, this great Christian, is saying, yeah, I got to a point where I handed him over to Satan. Yeah. Yeah. What Paul is simply saying is this. They wouldn't listen to me, to God, to anybody anymore. So the only thing left for us as Christians to do at that point is say, if that's the road you want to go, I'm handing you over to the power of the evil one. As a Christian, yeah. But notice what Paul's saying there. By me handing you over to the power of the evil one, you're going to go through a really hard education. You're going to learn the hard way some really hard lessons by being in his power for a while and not being in the power, living in the power of God. Because what had happened was they were treating God and the things of God very lightly and very casually. And Paul says, by me handing you over to Satan, you're going to learn not to treat God that way. And not to treat the things of God that way anymore. It's going to be a hard lesson. You're going to go through a lot of pain. But that's the only way that correction is going to come. You're going to have to learn your lesson the hard way. So it's not like Paul saying they're losing their salvation. It's actually notice that Paul is saying it's a, uh, it's, it's a corrective thing here. It, it's a way to teach them what they shouldn't be doing whenever we let them go and let them experience the full sort of road where they're, they're headed. Now again, the positive side of all this, back up in verse 19, is you and I need to keep listening to God and His voice through the Word of God. And keep navigating our life by His principles and by His precepts. And never let go. That's our roadmap. That's our, that's our GPS spiritually. That's our navigational system. That's, that's the chart that the, that the sailor, the captain of the ship would use to get through the choppy waters. Because if we don't navigate by God's precepts and principles... We will run our life aground, Paul says, and experience terrible loss and terrible pain. So in this great passage tonight, again, let me just summarize here. Paul's giving us a summary exposition of salvation. And he's saying, Timothy, you've got to teach your people in Ephesus about this. It's not just being saved from things. It's what God wants to save us to. Saved to grow, saved to serve, saved to relate to Him. Saved to be a showpiece to put on display to draw others to Christ. Saved to be a soldier and saved to navigate life by His principles and precepts. These are the things that we must continually be mindful of as those who are part of the household of God. 
the church of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. Next week, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul now wants to talk to the church about the priority of prayer and how prayer isn't to be something that is sort of part of, it is to be a great priority of the church. And Paul's going to teach us about basically how to pray and how to be a church of prayer and how to be people of prayer. So I hope you'll come back next week to listen to the first couple of verses in chapter 2. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Lord not just saving us out of something. As great as that is to be delivered from bondage and and the chains and, and slavery of sin, just like the Israelites in Egypt. But God, it doesn't stop there. So many Christians think salvation is the end, but it's just the beginning. God wants to take us into the promised land. He wants us to enjoy abundant life. He wants us to experience all that salvation can bring to us. And that's why we need to continue on with our salvation. And we were reminded tonight about what God has saved us to. Help us, Lord, to consider these things as we order our lives and make sure, God, that we are spending time and focused on our growth our service, our personal time with you. That we recognize, God, that everywhere we move about on this earth, especially in front of those who have yet to believe in you, that you want to use our lives as a showpiece to demonstrate what you can do in a life, to draw people to you as their Savior. But God, May we also acknowledge that being in this world and living on this earth is a fight. And instead of denying it or running from it, we've got to pick up the armor of God and we've got to be willing to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. And we can't just have the mentality that we're satisfied to be in the spiritual army. But like Paul says, we need to have the mindset that we want to be the best soldier. We want to render to Jesus distinguished military service so that one day we hear him say, well done. And God, as Paul said to Timothy, in order for us to do that, we've got to hold on to your word in our life. We've got to continually listen to your voice above all other voices. And then along with that, the support of the voice of our conscience. Because if we continue to listen to your voice and the voice of our conscience, we will never suffer spiritual shipwreck in this life. God, go with us tonight. Encourage your people. Continue to build us up, God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.